It is Thursday, October 17th, and welcome back to the Derek Diamond Experience podcast. So back in early September, when I came back from summer break, I had mentioned that I was going to do some tweaks and not necessarily permanent format changes, but when the occasion called for it, have a little bit of an extra dynamic on the podcast. So recently the film Joker came out and it's gotten a lot of good and bad publicity associated with it. I personally thought the film was fantastic. So for this first segment of the show, I'm going to be reviewing the film The Joker. But I am not alone in doing so because joining me is the co-writer of the film Monsters Anonymous and my co-host on the Nerd Cave Retro Podcast, Mr. Jason Robbins. Jason, how's it going? How's it going? Great. How are you? Not too bad. Not too bad. So I know both of us have seen Joker. We both grew up you know, pretty big nerds, as, as they would say, you know, grew up. You know, watching. I remember watching the original Batman movie uh, directed by Tim Burton as a kid, and I've watched all of them since. Love the animated series, and the nerd culture has really kind of become. I don't know if you would re- really call it nerd culture anymore. Ever since the success of the MCU and other films, you know, similar to that. But something that the Batman films have had in common is they always seem to bring back the Joker. You think all the way back to the 60s TV show, the animated series. There's been, I think, seven different incarnations of the Joker as far as being played by different individual characters. What is it to you that you think keeps the Joker coming back and why people are so intrigued by the character? Honestly, I think it's just because the, uh, you know, the Joker is kind of um, like the dark part of all of our personality, like that agent of chaos, you know? And um, I think that's just really intriguing to, to especially a character like Joker, who basically just kind of does whatever he wants without, you know, other than Batman, it's like, he's almost untouchable, you know, like you can just basically do whatever you want, <laughs> say what you want. And, you know, there's so many different versions of the Joker. Everyone has kind of had their own, special little take on it from you know Cesar Romero in the the 60s Batman and you had you know Jack Nicholson and Heath Ledger and all these great takes on the character and then you have this new movie which is you know with Joaquin Phoenix like it's something different and I felt as soon as I I left the theater I, I knew I had seen something like like uh, like a cinematic something special cinematically like it it deals with uh, like it's not just a comic book movie it's it's actually an important movie because it deals with you know a mental illness and kind of does a deep dive on mental illness and i think it's kind of important and not just as a comic book movie well, and it shows that there's very relevant topics in that film. And I was thinking of it as I was sitting there watching it and you're just watching. And side note, we will be talking about spoilers for the movie. So if you haven't seen it, then I would advise you to skip this portion of the podcast. But as I was sitting there watching it, just seeing all these things that kept happening to to Arthur from you know getting fired from his job to being set up to being fired from his job... Yeah. thing that happened with you know the bombshell that he found with 
his mother and things like that that just kept happening to him over and over. And he succumbs to not only his mental illness, but I think he was also very much a victim of his own environment and circumstances. And yeah. it shows kind of in the extreme method what can happen if you succumb to your demons and to, you know, what is around you. And that's the thing, you know, like people like us, like me and you, we've had a great life. <laughs> you know, we can have our, our quote unquote crazy side <laughs> and have it under control. But you have a lot of people in this world who just, you know, life just kind of shits on you sometimes. And for some people, it just keeps shitting on you. If I can, you know, curse a little bit on your show. But what would happen to you if you did have kind of a, a rough life and just things just kept going wrong and and you and people, you couldn't get help from anyone. And especially for people that have mental illnesses who have trouble getting help or can't afford it. And there was a, a part in the movie where you know, the, the psychiatrist he was going to and giving him the medication he needed, they lost their funding and there was no help coming. Like they, you know, they lost their government funding. And that's actually something that happened here not too long ago on the coast. We have here, I, I live in, Bilux well, I live in Ocean Springs, pretty close to uh, Biloxi and Gulfport, Mississippi. And we have the, the Mississippi Mental Health Center and Gulfport, which has been there, you know, for 30 40 years now and they were about to lose their funding a few months ago because of so they had uh, some administrative problems there was some embezzlement and stuff going on so the the mental health center was about to close and lose and lose its government funding and i, I was just like if that happens there's going to be a lot of people that can't get help like even me like you know, I have depression issues. I've had it my whole life and I have medication. I've been to see therapists and that's where I went to get started down the road of taking care of my depression, getting uh, getting set up with a, a therapist and getting set up with medication and things like that. So <clears throat> it's I think these things are really important. And, you know, there's a huge um discussion in our country right now about mental illness and uh, they blame like all these mass shootings and stuff on well he had mental illness and all this stuff and like well we need to do actually do something about it like yeah the, if these places like the mental health center loses their government funding then what what happens with these people you know like this is what could happen like whether or not it's a Joker movie or, um, you know, a comic book movie, this is real stuff that happens to people. Like if they don't get help, they could, you know, seriously <laughs> slide down the, the, the ladder of mental illness and go to places that it gets dangerous for them. Well, when you think of examples like the, the shootings that happened in Texas several months ago, and even dating back, way back into the 90s there have been examples of there being a serious need to address mental health and the thing i liked about the way they expressed it in joker was that it wasn't so on the nose like they didn't flat out say you know we're addressing stuff that's going on in the world today but it's something that really makes you think 
Yeah. Because, because a lot of people that I know will avoid the news because you know, they think it's too negative or they don't like what they're hearing. But most everyone likes going to a movie. You know, movie is a great reason to escape reality, but it can also remind you of reality in a very subtle way. And I, I think Joker did nearly the perfect job of explaining that because it wasn't so, you know, on the nose. Like it wasn't being very preachy, but still explaining that you know, this is something that needs to be addressed. Exactly. You know, and I like you, you said they did that brilliantly where they take and that's what good art does is it makes you think about what's happening in the real world. Like art imitates life. And there's a lot of things we need to deal with in this world. But there's, you know, there's a lot of bureaucracy and people that just don't have you know, certain interests in mind that are in politics and things like that. And, you know, I don't want to get political or anything, but that's, you know, they're, they're, like politicians are always talking about, we need to address mental health in this country. And I'm like, well, how are we supposed to do that when we can't afford to, you know, a lot of people can't afford mental health, like without some sort of uh, you know, health, like universal health care or something like that. If we want to take care of these problems, then we need to actually help people. Like, uh, let's put some money into into some sort of a universal health care program to where people that need help can actually get the help that they need. And that kind of uh, that kind of stuff like was put out there kind of brilliantly by this movie. That it, it wasn't just, like I said, it wasn't just a Joker movie. Like, it took a lot of real-life things and kind of put them through that that spectrum of, you know, uh, a comic book movie. Which, you know, uh, Martin Scorsese recently said that, you know, comic book movies are not cinema. I say that this movie was 100% cinema. Like, this is, <laughs> this was, like taxi driver or you know any kind of like just really like dark drama about life you know the dark side of life and things that can happen very character driven yeah exactly yeah that's how i feel about the whole scorsese thing too is that film is so subjective you know people have their own opinions what you like i may not like and vice versa so I mean, everyone's entitled to their own opinion, so it's. I didn't really take much merit into it, but I, I do agree with, with what you said. Now, as far as the movie itself, because we're both huge movie fans, we've both made our own films, what did you think of it from an actual film standpoint? Because with me, I haven't seen a film like that in a long time that's purely, almost purely character-driven. And yeah. just just showing what happens when one person can succumb to their evils. But I will say it, and as far as Joaquin Phoenix goes, you know, it's he's been getting praised pretty much nonstop since the film was released. I truly believe it when I say this. It was one of the top five best acting performances I've ever seen. Oh yeah, absolutely. If he doesn't get a best best actor nod for this movie. There's no justice in this world. <laughs> and I think the thing that they did brilliantly was, like you said, that it, we don't get movies like this anymore 
Like it's, it's very hard for kind of small character driven movies to be put into the big theaters and make the amount of money that Joker did. Like if this was a movie that had nothing to do with the Joker, it was just called, you know, the clown or something like that. And it was just about a guy who, you know, take out all the, the, the DC comics elements, take out Gotham city, take out the reference to Thomas Wayne, change his name to, you know, Donald Trump or whatever, like doesn't matter. Just some rich person. And you just make this a straight character drama. It, it would not have even broke a million dollars. I don't think it would have been something that would have been straight to VOD or, you know, a, a movie that would have gotten lost in the shuffle. And I think that's the smart thing they did was they took this character story and just slapped, you know, a Joker coat of paint on it to make it more palatable for uh, mass audiences. Like they're going to go see a movie about the Joker. They're not going to go see a movie about just, you know, some dude who like has a mental illness. Like that's a tough hill to climb to, especially, you know, how much money did the Joker make? Like a hundred million dollars the first weekend, something like, like the that. biggest October opening ever. If it wasn't a hundred, it was really close to it. I want to say it might've been like 94, or 95, but either way, it, it made a lot of money, and especially for what's considered, as far as blockbusters go, kind of a dead time for movies, did really well. Well, that's the thing. I mean, do you, am I wrong? Do you think that if it, it didn't have that, that Joker coat of paint on it, do you think it would have made that amount of money? No, I honestly don't think so. I think it would have gotten a lot of you know, Academy Award attention by saying, oh, well, this performance by Joaquin Phoenix was great. But it wouldn't have garnered as much mainstream attention because it, kind of going back to the beginning of our conversation, the Joker is such a unique character that people almost seem drawn to, that people want to see more of. But we haven't really seen his origin story. And, and his origin story has been told numerous different ways, and he has quite honestly more than one origin story but yeah. it took it took some elements from almost all of them like the wanting to be a stand-up comic and just struggling with life in general it reminded me a little bit of the killing joke yeah but it was almost original in its own way and i think that honestly is something that attracted a lot of people is that n not a lot of people know about the joker's origin and people wanted to see it. And then the result of that was, as it's being called, a cinematic masterpiece. Yeah. And I think that's the thing, too. A lot of people are... are I heard a lot of people that didn't... Uh, talk to people that didn't like the movie because they're like, oh, this is not... You know, this is not canon, or you know, this is, uh, this is not the Joker's uh, true background story or whatever. And I'm like, that's kind of the beauty of the Joker. As you can tell, like, this doesn't have to be canon. This can just be a one-off movie, you know, one person's take on what could have been the origin of the Joker. And that's the beauty of the Joker, is you can pretty much tell any kind of origin story you want. And, it, you know, the, and the takeaway I took from the movie is you look at the very final scene of the movie and she asks him, you know, what's so funny? 
And he said, uh, I just thought of a joke. And she said, well, well, tell me. And he's like, you wouldn't get it. I honestly think the entire movie was in his head. I don't think any of it happened. Oh, that's brilliant. I didn't even think of that. Because you look at, at Arkham Asylum earlier in the movie and how it was kind of dirty and dingy. But and, you know, they had some flashbacks where he was talking to a psychiatrist and she was asking him about being, you know, in the, the institution. And there was a quick flash of him banging his head. He was like in a padded room and he was banging his head against the glass. Mm-hmm. There was just, it was just a quick like, wasn't he? I don't even know if it was a second long. So I think there was some clues. I'd like to watch the movie again, but I think there's clues along the way. And you look at the very final scene of Arkham Asylum, and it's very bright and clean, and it, it, you know, the very stark like juxtaposition between like the white walls and, and the floor and the red footprints that suggested that he killed his psychiatrist. Yeah, and I think honestly, I think there's clues throughout the movie that tell you that this whole thing happened in his head. Well, and you can even go back to earlier in the movie when he's, you know, dating his neighbor, and that turns out to be all in his head. And then he just shows yeah. up in her apartment, and she's like, oh, aren't you the guy who lives down the hall? Which that kind of, it took me out of it at the very beginning, but the the more I thought about it, the more I, I actually really liked, you know, just this whole thing of him having a relationship was just completely in his head. It just further shows the the mental illness and almost the, the delusion that, that he lives in. Mm-hmm. So what did you think? And I actually really like that, that theory of everything being in his head. I know I've told you this, but there is one small gripe that I have with the movie's ending. And that is showing the Waynes getting killed at the end. Now I know that it's an iconic moment in the whole Batman lore, but I felt like it was thrown in just for the sake of, oh, we have to put this in there. Because it just seemed so, it almost seemed out of place in a way. Yeah. Because you, you see, you know, the, the Joker's broken out of the police car. That, that shot of, you know, the mob in the background and he smears his blood on his face to make the smile. Like, that was awesome. I, yeah. I loved everything about that. And then you show, oh, yeah, the Waynes have to be killed. It just felt really out of place for me. Yeah, and that it felt out of place to me too. I think it was thrown in. I think they were kind of forced. I felt like it was one of those scenes that they were kind of forced to put in there to like really like drive it home. Like, oh, this is the Batman universe. Like, oh, we have to have you know some sort of reference to Batman. Like, if people didn't get the Thomas Wayne reference, we need to have a you know the Batman reference in here. And I really do think that it really felt forced and was not needed at all. No, because everybody knows that it's happened. I mean, we've seen it on screen how many numbers of times? Yeah, and 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 they could have done it where they just, you know, they were walking out of the theater, and then you see the guy, like, watch them walk by and then follow them. That's all they needed to do. Yeah. If they'd have just shown that, that would have been like, oh, I bet they get killed in the alley. And if they didn't show it, that would have been so much better. Like uh, it was, you it, you would have left the theater going, was that when Thomas and Martha Wayne were killed? Like was that the moment during all of this, you know, chaos? Like that would have been a little more palatable if they would have just left out the entire scene of them getting killed. Well, I think it took away from what the story was supposed to be about, and that's the Joker. 
yeah. you see, you know, him almost rising to power in a way, and then you cut to cut away to, oh, yeah, this happens, and then cut back to Joker. It, yeah. it was just very, very random. Yeah, it just felt so out of place. That was my that was really my only gripe with the movie too. Was that one little scene. It was like we don't we've seen this a thousand times. We don't need to see this again. So was there any certain scene that stood out to you as far as you thinking, holy crap, that was awesome? Oh, just man. Um, there were so many. <laughs> um I mean, like you said, the, at the very end when he's kind of rises to power and takes his own blood and makes the, the Joker smile. I think that was an iconic image. And I think that's going to be one of those images that is kind of uh, moving forward. That's going to be kind of one of those things that people point to, you know, and, and as an important um, moment for the Joker was that scene. Um, and you know, I liked some of the the other parts, like when he actually goes on to the the talk show. Like I thought yes. that whole scene was great. That's my favorite of the entire movie. Yeah, I think that scene of and getting Robert De Niro to do the movie too was uh, that was a, a real get to have him play that part. Oh, seeing De Niro act really anytime is great. Yeah. But that whole scene, that whole uh, scene of him on the uh, the talk show was probably my favorite scene of the movie. Well, and the cool thing is, and to me the most iconic part of that entire scene is when the curtains open. Because to me, it's that's when he enters as the Joker. Like, yeah. he is the Joker from when that moment happens to the end of the movie. And I remember... Just even feeling my heart start to beat a little bit faster when he reveals that he killed, you know, the three kids on the subway. Because you just you're waiting for that moment when he's just gonna blow De Niro's brains out. Yeah. Because I I didn't think he was gonna kill himself. Because they had teased that he was gonna do that yeah. on national TV, but I'm thinking it, it's the way the story is gonna go, it just wouldn't it would make sense, but also not make sense, if that makes sense. When that happened it was that whole scene was just fantastic and the climax to me of the entire film. And I, I think you're right too, that the, the part, especially the, the right b before he walks out uh, from behind the curtain and you see kind of that he's standing there in silhouette and then he, they do the kind of the pullback on the camera and he does that, that weird little dance that he does almost like Tai Chi. Mm -hmm. I think that was the, the signal of, Arthur is gone and now he's the Joker. Like this is where this is the definite definitive birth of the Joker because he is about to unleash utter chaos at this point. Yeah. Because as soon as he, he kills uh, Robert De Niro's character, I can't remember his name, but the, the talk show host, as soon as he kills him, like that was cemented him as, you know, the Joker. He's the, He's the face of this new like uh, reign of chaos that's happening in Gotham City. Well, something else, and that's a good segue, because I don't know if you picked up on this, but the more people he killed, he seemed to become more confident. Because if you think in the beginning, he gets you know beat up by the, by the kids who stole his sign. He kills the three people on the subway. After that happens, he almost has a little bit more of a swagger to him. Yeah. Then he kills his former co-worker. Then he kills the talk show host. 
And is every time he killed someone, it seemed like his attitude would change and he became almost more secure in who he was. Well, that's the thing. I, I think it was during the interview for the talk show when he was talking about killing those three guys. He was like, you know, I, or was it before that where he says, I thought I would, I would feel bad. <laughs> you know, like I, I thought I would feel differently, but I actually feel good. <laughs> like I don't feel any kind of remorse basically for, for killing those people. And that's a scary thought. You know, that's every, you know, serial killer out there, like that, you know, throughout history, like there, that's a, a hallmark of psychopaths and, you know, sociopaths and things like that is they don't feel remorse. Yeah. No, it's, it was just a, a great, a great character piece and something that I'd love to see a little more often, if I can be perfectly honest. Like, I can even think of other DC characters that would make a great one-off story, and that's what I think DC should do. I think they should just say, screw it to their shared universe because it didn't work. Yeah. I, I was thinking about this as I left theater. If they did a Mr. Freeze film similar to this, I oh, think I that would be great. Like uh, the, uh, the the Batman animated series? Yeah, the Heart uh, of Ice. Heart of Ice? Yeah. Dude, that would be epic. I know. It would be so great. One other thing I wanted to throw in there, as far as like the, the talk show scene at the end was easily my favorite, but another scene that I really liked was Arthur confronting Thomas Wayne in the restroom. Yeah, because you, that you was a good scene. You don't really, you've never really seen anything with the Wayne parents because they're you know, obviously dead when Bruce Wayne becomes Batman. But seeing him have that confrontation with Arthur was, and even the fact that he said, you know, put to put it bluntly, if you touch my son again, I'll fucking kill you. Yeah, <laughs> that that kind of shot me as I was like, oh, that's that's coming from that's coming from Thomas Wayne. Did oh, you? Oh, that's a. That's another thing I wanted to touch on, too, was they, there was a whole new take on Thomas Wayne, too. You know, throughout uh, all the different like comic books and movies, when we've looked back on Thomas Wayne, he's always kind of presented as this, you know, like people-loving philanthropist who, you know, made hospitals. And he was always kind of like the, you know, like pointed Bruce in the right direction with, you know, with good advice. And he's almost looked at as sort of like a, a rich uh, Jonathan Kent type of character, like, you know, pure goodness. And this one, he's kind of portrayed as a shithead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know? No, he really was. And there's a whole subplot. I remember reading about it, and I didn't know if I believed it or not. But there's a subplot where it's possible that Thomas Wayne is the actual father of Arthur. And then they reveal that, you no, know, Arthur's mom was put in a mental institution after you know she worked for the Waynes. And Thomas said, no, I'm not, I'm not your father. I never even slept with your mother. But there's a little Easter egg in there where Arthur finds a picture of his mom from when she was younger. And on the back it says, I've always enjoyed your smile with the initials TW. Yeah. Uh, and that's another, I mean, that's the thing about the movie is... Arthur is, you know, we're focused on Arthur the whole time, but he's an unreliable narrator. Yeah. 
like there's not really anything in the movie we can take it at face value like did any of this even happen did you know did thomas wayne really uh, have an affair with his mother and then to cover it up you know the birth of a son he put her in a mental institution like that's the kind of shady shit someone with that much money would do especially like an aspiring politician and things of that nature like and that's the thing is like you know we're the whole movie is a, is sort of about the haves and the have nots and that's something we're dealing with in the in the world right now is as wealth uh inequality and you know there's there's gonna be a breaking point at, and and that's kind of what the movie was about too was there was a breaking point between the haves and the have nots yeah no you're you're absolutely right there's so much going on in this movie like if if you haven't seen it please go watch it it's like i said i left that movie going this is an important piece of cinema that you know we don't really get important movies like this you know, like anymore like don't get me wrong i love the marvel movies and i think that you know uh, the avengers movies were a cinematic achievement but there's just something important about the Joker that I think people just need to see it. Well, I think it's almost more than a movie. Like, you know, as much money as Endgame made and how great of a movie that was, it was ultimately just a fun movie. Yeah, it's like you popcorn. Couldn't, yeah, you uh, couldn't really... Yeah. You know, a popcorn flick. Yeah, but with Joker, it's something different. You know, I think it's it's something more. And I even like the, the reference in it. I can't remember the exact context, but they bring up the Joker as a symbol as kind of a, a nod to, you know, the Nolan Batman trilogy where they said, you know, Batman's not really a person. It's a symbol. Yeah. I, I think this entire movie could be portrayed as a symbol for, as we were talking about earlier, mental health, very relevant things that are going on in the world. To me, it, it's more than just a film. It's almost uh, an exaggerated effect on potential reality. Yeah. But I definitely, I, I want to go see it again. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you 100%. Like, uh, it's an important movie that people need to see. Just take the fact that it's the Joker just completely out of it. And it doesn't even need to be the Joker. Like I, like, <clears throat> like I said, I think the only reason that they called it the Joker and put the, you know, the Gotham city elements and stuff. in it was to make it be able to make a lot of money and be able to be, you know, put in the theaters and people will go see it because it has, you know, it's about the Joker. Like if you just, it's very easy to just strip all that away and just have like a character, you know, a character driven story, but that, that alone is not going to get people to the theater. The fact that it's the Joker will get people to the theater. So that's why I think they were brilliant in doing what they did, making this a Joker movie. Do you think there should be a sequel? No, honestly, no. I think it's perfect as a stand, just a standalone movie. Let, let me fill in the, the story of what happens afterwards. Like, you know, that that's the fun and the speculation of, that that's what builds nerd culture is us sitting around going, well, what do you think happens next? You know, like <laughs> it does is because by the time that uh, Bruce Wayne would become Batman, you know, would be 10 easily 10, 12 years from now. Like the Joker would be in his fifties. 
at that point. Like that's kind of a big age gap between the two, but they're supposed to be the flip side of the same coin. Yeah, I agree. I don't think there should be a sequel. I know that uh, there's been a few talks about it, but I'm 100% with you. I don't think that they should. It should be left open to interpretation. And like I said earlier, that's to me what DC should focus on is just doing single one-off films based around their characters. And then whatever happens after that is open for interpretation. Honestly, if DC does that, I think they could be fairly successful because, I mean, look how much money Joker's already made. Yeah. Oh, and you look at how good their animated films are, too, and that's what they are. They're just kind of one-off stories, and I think if they just do that live action, I I think DC would be up there with Marvel. Like, don't worry about a a cinematic universe. Just give us a one-off Batman story or a one-off Superman story. We already know their backstory. You don't have to tell us their backstory about how they became Batman or how he became Superman. Just make a movie that just drops us in the middle of, you know, a a very contained story. Yep. No, I totally agree. Last thing I'll ask you as we start to wrap up, what was your biggest takeaway from Joker? Uh, My biggest takeaway is um, you can tell comic book stories and have it be important cinematic achievements. You can tell a deeper story, you know, deep character stories with these characters. And I hope that it's something that they they start doing in the future. I hope so, too, because the the possibilities are nearly endless. And like you said, like even the Mr. Freeze Heart of Ice, like that would be that's such a good story that if they just did that as, you know, a one off movie. I would love that too. I mean, that that's that's a heart wrenching story in itself. Well, yeah, because he's one of the few villains that you can not necessarily justify, but you can understand his motives for doing what he does. Well, that's what makes the Marvel villains in the movie so great is they're sympathetic villains. Like you can actually identify with them and almost agree with what they're doing, and that's what makes those villains so great. Yeah. No, I, I totally agree. But do you want to plug uh, Nerd Cave Retro or anything before we get out of here? Actually, yeah. Um, go over and listen to me and Derek on the Nerd Cave Retro show at Nerd Cave Retro on Twitter and Nerd Cave Retro on Facebook. Um, we do reviews of retro games and we also cover retro gaming news, video game news, video game history um we do like i said we do reviews of uh old video games retro games sometimes we do new games but if that's uh that's up your alley go check us out at the nerd cave retro show awesome well jason thank you so much for taking the time to talk about joker and now we'll turn it over to director jody wheeler who will be joining me to talk about his film the dark place thank you it's my pleasure Happy to be joined with the director of The Dark Place, Mr. Jody Wheeler. How are you this evening? I'm pretty good. How about yourself? Not too bad. We were just talking, you know, right before we got started, just kind of kind of unwinding for the day, and it's it's cool to uh, to have you on the show. I appreciate you coming on. Well, I, I appreciate you inviting me. Thank you. 
absolutely. So uh, I guess we'll just kind of dive right in. Your film, The Dark Place, which I actually uh, had the pleasure of watching yesterday, what was it that was kind of the inspiration of you making this film? Because from what I understand, this is your first feature, right? Yes, my first feature. Um, it's not the first um, feature script that I had produced, but it is the it is my first feature. Um, and I guess you know the simplest thing is families are hell. <laughs> <laughs> and and while while it's not a real story, it does take just you know all of these kind of themes from my family and other people's family and all the stuff that we that, that kind of goes into being a family and then just takes it to kind of a a, a little bit of a higher you know, fun thriller level and let you explore a little bit of those themes in a, in, in a, in, in a way while still having people, you know, uh, backstab and, and, um, put people in comas and, and, and threaten to chop their fingers off and all kinds of crazy. It's interesting because I was actually curious about that. If you took any type of aspects from real life or maybe not necessarily yours, but, other people that you knew, because I find that a lot of people who work in film that I talk to, especially those that write scripts, they'll take elements of reality and just kind of, you know, turn the volume all the way up and make it almost not necessarily an exaggerated situation, but take an element of truth and then make it a great piece of fiction. Cause it's like that old saying, the truth sometimes can be stranger than fiction. Exactly. I, you know, everybody, I don't care how great your relationship is with your parents. At some point in time, you have friction with your parents. I don't care how great your relationship is with, with your partner. At some point in time, you have friction with your partner. And you also are possessed with all of these doubts and um, and also all of your hopes and your dreams and all your good qualities and bad. And so I thought about those inside of myself. Um, once upon a time, I was a, I was a therapist and I, and I, uh, and social worker. And so I thought of, you know, all the little pieces that, uh, that, that had popped in conversations and stuff that I had with people over the years. And I then said, okay, um, it, it just kind of all slammed together in my head about this character who, um, had done a lot, who had been estranged from his family, um, for good reasons and bad and how he comes home to try to make amends and finds that something is afoot. And in order to solve and save the day, he's still got to go through this whole windy business with everybody who knew him from before, the people who were with him at that moment, who he wants to be in the future. All that stuff kind of just came together in that story, and, and I ran with it. Well, I think that's another way that the film is relatable, because as I was watching it, it's like you said, everybody has a fight with their parents, regardless if you have a great relationship with them or not arguments are going to happen if they're with significant others or friends. The friction is going to happen. So it felt like a very real film to me. You know, as I'm sitting there watching it, I'm thinking, you know, I've, I've, it made me think of arguments that I've had with, you know, people that I'm close with. And even the aspect of, you know, kind of facing your past in a way, because a lot of us have to do that, you know, because we've all done things that we're not necessarily proud of when we were younger. So that I think that really hit home too is that sometimes you have to face your fears and your past head on. Yeah. And, and, and I think the other thing that kind of, that kind of clicked it together and had the whole thing, um, uh, solidify is I'd come across, um, a very real condition, hyperthymesia where some, where, 
where it's a, it's a small group of people that have been studied that have just this incredible recall of events and, and moments and where they, in, in some of them love it and some of them hate it, but it basically allows them to relive things um, as if it's happening in, in, in real time way in the future so or uh, it, it, where they are now. So I thought about a bad experience that I had with, with someone. You and I have a sense of distance from that. And even though it feels bad, and we sometimes will relive it in our minds. It's not as if we're actually going through it. There's still a, a lot of a lot of distance, a lot of distance. If you could then, but what if all of those bad things we talk about, and you could feel like you were doing it again and again and again, and it's just it's just as present in that moment. And so that kind of then that kind of then takes this whole thing and makes it really it all kind of came together in that moment and, and putting those pieces together um, to say, this is a guy who has this flaw. And at the same time, it's in essence, it's a superpower that he's got to learn how to use on top of um, making amends and saving the day and, 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 and being the best person that um, he's always wanted to be. And so it just, it just became this really kind of crazy cool setup um, to tell a, to tell a pretty uh, fun story with. Yeah, it's it was interesting watching you know Keegan the main character his dynamic with really everyone because it's almost like he's trying to push people away, but he doesn't want to. So it's you're in a way feeling his internal struggle almost from the very beginning. Yeah, I I've always liked characters that are a little brusque, a little uh, difficult. Um, that come across as a slightly a slight bit of a jerk, but you know that it that there's something more to it, and they really like themselves, and or they really they really want to be better than who they are, and that was kind of the thing with with Keegan is yeah he's a he could be a bit of a he could be a bit of a pain in the butt, um, and at the same time you know that there's something more to him, there's something more that he loves, he he loves the people around him, he's trying to do better, he's always tried to do better, but he just he just can't quite say the right thing at the right time and can't quite not be a dick at some points in time. And then it, but it still, it works. He's able to find a way through all of that and to put all those pieces together in his life and tell a new story about himself and, and, and be better. Well, the cool thing also is that it starts off, you know, as I'm watching the film, it's unfolding like a, a family drama that you would watch in a theater or even, you know, on a, like a Netflix film. But then it it takes a, a lot of very interesting <laughs> twists. Very, very interesting um, twists. Yeah, I'm I'm laughing. I'm laughing because that was that was kind of by design is 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 that it it just it has this family melodrama esque, you know, something's a little off. And then, you know, uh, a third, uh, 30%, 40% of the way in, 30, 40 minutes, and it just takes a left turn, and it it just goes. And it goes all the way through, straight through to the end, and it takes you on a ride um, uh, from there. And, and that, was by, that was by design, and then we just, we, we really kind of hit it. I, we kind of hit it and, and amped that up even more with the editing and the, um, and the way we structured it and, and everything, and, and 
working up to before we started shooting, we just refined it to make sure that we, that was the direction that we were going in and take the project in. Yeah, the, I won't completely spoil what happens, but the twist with the stepfather and the stepbrother <laughs> was really, I was like, what? Yes. And, and that, that I've never, that's just, that's, that's totally shameless, but that I think I I might have watched one too many Lifetime movies. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm not I'm not too I'm not too big to say that yes I have turned on you know Mother May I Sleep with Danger or you know something really terrible on on the Lifetime movies that you're just going this is so bad but I can't turn away and that sits in the back of your mind and and so I just threw some of that stuff in there. The, the point was to have fun. And to have fun with the story, to to maybe touch on some um, some some deeper themes, some real themes, but still to just to make something that you can sit back and watch and and enjoy and go for a ride and have to think about a little bit and um, and put things back together and and see how it all kind of connects. Yeah, I mean, I think we've all just been you know flipping channels on TV and we pass through Lifetime and we're like, oh, what was that? And the next thing you know, 15 minutes have gone by and you've watched part of a Lifetime movie. We've all done it. Yes. We've all done it. So whoever's and, listening, don't and, deny and then yourself. And then, you're like, and then you're checking to say, oh, what's the next movie? <laughs> no, no, I'm not going to sit through the next movie. And then you're watching the next movie on Lifetime. I mean, it's, uh, it, it's crack. It can be crack sometimes, <laughs> but whatever. That's great. Uh, something I actually did want to to compliment you on with the film. So Keegan, the main character, is is gay, right? But I I felt like it didn't fall into a stereotype, which a lot of films like that can very easily do. It's one of those things like you know that the character, like from the very beginning, you know that he's gay, but it's not so like on the nose and and very preachy about you know, about that aspect of his character. Like he, all his flaws are just very human flaws that any of us could have. And I thought that was absolutely the right way to go with it. So I, I I give you credit for not falling into, you know, what could have been a stereotype. Well, I always think that the most, you know, powerful stories that you tell are just about people. And I, and at no point in time in the story do you ever sh- is it ever shied away from the fact that this is a you know this is a gay man he shows up with his boyfriend and everything else and whether people like him or don't like him for you know who he is his sexual orientation um uh his choice of words or whatnot you can see that in the background but it's not it's not the story the story is this man going forward and i find those kind of things much more powerful when the hero of your story just is. And if it comes to, to, uh, as I'm, I'm gay myself. And so when I'm telling stories, I, and it includes a gay character, I want the gay character just to, um, to be a character. Their sexual orientation is just as much a part of them as any other character's sexual orientation is. But it, it, it defines us in, in, in the way that uh, who we love defines us in, in, in any shape or form. There's more that defines us too. And so that I think is, is the stronger, more powerful way of telling a story. No, I absolutely agree. So with this being your first feature that you directed, because you had done some shorts uh, prior to that, what was the biggest difference in the preparation process with The Dark Place as opposed to any of the short films that you had done? Well, I mean, it's just, it's just a bigger 
deal. It's a it's a much bigger um, it's a much bigger pr- problem uh, when you're dealing with the full on feature. I mean, everything is amped up. You you know you're not done in three or four days. You're in it for you know 20 21 days to 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 shoot this thing and and it's there for you know for this film we had another director um that was uh, that was assigned uh that we brought on to do it and i was watching and shadowing and and i'd done the shorts but i still wanted to see a feature done myself but then a, a couple of uh, then a couple of days into shooting the director got sick and we and had to drop out i mean in you know in the production and so it was kind of this point of you just step in three days or so into the shoot and, and now it's all on you. So everything that you've watched, all the prep that you've done, all the prep that you've been a part of now it all kind of, and, and all the time that you thought, Oh, well, I'm going to just see what, what was happening here at the full feature level. And now I'll know what to do the next time. The universe just says, Hey, it's your turn. You're on. And you step right in and you, and you do the job and you kind of carry it through. So in a lot of ways, I didn't have any time to, um, to to panic over directing or to be anxious over directing it was just um a a, you know a crisis happened on the set unavoidable and you just step in and you take over and you and you go um and then when it's all said and done when you know when you're when you're finally at the end of shooting yeah you're like oh hey wow that was crazy (laughs) (laughs) and then and then there's a little voice in the back of your head goes let's do that again um and that's what happened yeah, it's interesting because every other, almost every other filmmaker that I talk with on this podcast, they all have that one thing in common: is that they're almost, you know, bitten by the bug of filmmaking, and it's something that once you do, that's all you want to do. You just want to keep doing it, and as exhausting as it is, you can't wait to make another project. Uh, true, and and there is something to it to to, to standing on set. To having 30, 40 people all buzzing around and a cast and crew that you're working with and you get kind of psyched for it. You are uh, exhausted at the end of the day. I don't think I've ever slept so well in my life as I did on, on that project. Um, but it's just, it's a really, really fun thing. It challenges every last aspect of yourself and you kind of, and you live to do it again and again and again. Um, I mean, and you love to do it again on a short, love to do it again on a feature. You just, you just keep wanting to to do it um, uh, repeatedly. Also, in the in the essence of making your own self, your own abilities better. You're trying to refine yourself. You're trying to see what it is that you can bring to the camera new, uh, bring you a, a scene new this time. Um, what can you get out of your actor? Um, uh, a little bit more, a little bit different. How can you pull all of these pieces together? That's also that's also this other challenge in all of this. Um, somewhere along the way, I, I heard a, uh, an expression that said that filmmaking is probably um, the most expensive canvas um, you can create art on because I, it doesn't matter if you're making a short in your house or you're doing a $110 million feature. You write a screenplay and that's fine, but to actually see it happen, you have to put it up on the screen, and that screen is that canvas, and it takes a lot of not just um, dollars, but it takes a lot of emotional energy and a lot of buy-in from a lot of different people in order to make this happen. 
especially with an indie film, because chances are you're wearing a lot of different hats. You know, a lot of these big budget features, you have someone who's just a director or just an actor, whereas you might have someone who, you know, is a director, writes the script and also produces. So it's in a way a much more exhausting process, I think, because you're having to worry about so many aspects. But in a way, I think that makes it more rewarding. Um, I do too. It, it's it's crazier in that uh, you like on this one. I'm I was the writer, uh, the producer, and the director. And on the producer side of things, um, you're you're in charge of the creative putting it together. But you're also um, as an indie film, you're also in charge of trying to find the money or trying to find the people who can find you the money and put all of that together. And that's a completely different part of the brain and a completely different process. And then you get on uh, to the create back to the creative side and putting all of those pieces together. And it's a, it's a much different process um, of doing this than the friends that I have that are on the uh, non-indie route, um, so to speak, who are much more studio driven where in a lot of ways they can just focus on the creative side. Still a lot, still a lot of emotional and physical and mental energy that, that goes into that. But it's a, it's a, it's a, completely different kind of beast when you're doing an indie film than when you're doing a more uh, studio-driven production. No, absolutely. You had mentioned earlier that you were you used to be a therapist and a social worker. Yes. How did you transition from that into filmmaking? <laughs> um, well, I, for me, um, I always have looked at it that um, uh, whether you're dealing with a client one-on-one um, or a piece of paper one-on-one, you're dealing with people with a story and you're helping people to tell a narrative better. Um, people who have problems or wounded are, um, are trying to recover from something or just trying to work something out. They're, they're seeing all of the pieces of their life and they're trying to reorganize it and they're trying to make a better, more meaningful story for what they're doing. And when you're writing something on a page, you are also you have all of these ideas and all of these incidents um, and you're trying to arrange them and put them together in such a way that you are telling a, um, a better narrative. So the through line in a lot of ways between the two pieces is narrative, how we tell stories, how we tell stories about ourselves, our world um, uh, our hopes, our dreams, our desires, what we want to do for the future, how we see the past, how we see the present. It's all kind of wrapped up in this idea of what a story is. The world is still the world. We have science to tell us you know, the way, the, what the facts are of the world. And that's, and that's also a beautiful thing. What we kind of do with those facts and what we all do with our own personal experience and our own personal worlds, that's, that's very much of a story. And that's very much of a personal piece. And the beauty of, um, of, of, Therapy is you're helping people to make a better story from themselves. The beauty of movies or novels or whatnot is you're writing a story that you're hoping um, is meaningful to a lot more people and, and trying to bring people in to that, to see it, to feel it, and to share what it is that you see. So that's kind of the through line between them. And then for me, I mean, even when I was in, in grad school getting my, getting my degree, my first degree, in um, in counseling, you know, back in the '90s, I was still writing for some local television, and I kept going back and forth as to what I wanted to do, what I wanted to do. And somewhere along the way, this was back in Washington D.C., and somewhere along the way, I decided that I would go out to Hollywood and 
you know, hopefully, and, you know, I called ahead, but Steven Spielberg didn't get my message. So when I rolled into town, you know, I had to, I, I, I got, still got sidetracked being a social worker here in Los Angeles for a number of years, but I kept writing on the side and I made, um, some, some short films and stuff just to keep working stuff and working stuff. And then eventually the, the, everything lined up and I was able to, um, to leave social work and, and, and psychotherapy. And I went back to school, got another degree in, in film and writing and was able to make that transition into being, um, a filmmaker and, a um, uh, and, and a producer. And, and look, and I still do some, some therapy stuff on the side or therapy related stuff on the side. It, it all kind of weaves back and forth together. You, writing, you can, to, you know, to pay the, to pay the bills because independent film doesn't necessarily always pay the best. Um, you know, you still wind up writing for, um, uh, teaching an English class here or helping other people uh, write their screenplays or write their essays better or technical writing or whatnot. It's all about storytelling and it's all helping to pull stories together and make them make sense and make them make the kind of sense that the author wants them to make. So I love doing it. I really do. Do you think that your time as a therapist has helped you, I don't want to say perfect, but has helped you develop your ability to tell stories through your writing? Yes, I think um, I, I think it has. I think it's given me a little bit of a better sense of um, how people actually interact with each other, um, and how you know when you're writing a, a when you're writing a story, you're still it's you're trying to be a little more real than real because you know reality is a lot of ums and ahs and and pauses and stuff as as we figure stuff out, but on a on a film on a on a novel on a short story you are able to kind of understand or i think i'm able to understand what how people talk back and forth to each other and then frame that in such a way that it it feels real whether you're telling a an ultra hyper real thriller or a drama piece um there's a way of coming at it and there's a way of seeing how people interact with each other and you're trying to bring that um, to the page and you're trying to make it all come organically and sometimes you succeed and sometimes you fail but but that's what you're trying to do when you're when you're telling these um, these narrative fictional stories is make it feel real um, and that helps to draw people in and that helps people to better enjoy what it is that you're doing and that's a great point because I've noticed and even with my struggle with with my writing it's making things seem real because film is always yeah. a little, I won't say exaggerated, but a little, it's a little exaggerated. But you still want it to feel <laughs> like it's a situation that, if you're writing a drama, a situation that is relatable and can actually happen. So I, I, I think, you know, yeah. you, you hit the nail on the head with that. Yeah. And it's, it's not to, you know, because uh, I'm, a, I'm a sci-fi nerd, but it's, it's also when you when you look at something like an asylum movie, which is a, you know, which are, are mockbusters, which are not, which are rushed and, and, and whatever. And for however entertaining they can be, they, they don't resonate in the way. Um, if you pick your, your, your favorite high class sci-fi film. So if you take something like aliens or you take something like, um, uh, what else? Um, I don't know. I, I just use those as kind of as kind of comparison. I mean, even if like a James Cameron Alien, William Wisher uh, was one of the writers on that, I believe, and and 
and how there's a a more realistic interaction between the people, even though you know there's great lines and, and whatnot in them. You can kind of see that difference between where you are trying to pull more reality into what you're doing, even in the most fantastical of tales, and where you just really don't give a don't give a care, don't give a fuck, you know, with a with a asylum type of story or a B B movie type of story where people don't care. And that's kind of the two poles that you've got when you're making film is how do you, what are you going to go for? Are you just throwing stuff against the wall to see what sticks? Or are you trying to, to make it real so that people can, can grab hold and really go in the story and really be carried along on the adventure that you're presenting them with? Well, that's the beauty of film is there's so many different genres that resonate in so many different ways. You have your dramas that make you remember good or bad memories you have sci-fi films like you said alien or star wars that you just go to a theater and you escape from for a couple of hours and that's you'd mentioned filmmaking as an art form and that to me is the art of film is just the sheer amount of different emotions and reasons that people can enjoy them yeah and and it it is always new always inventive you're always trying to bring something new to the table to better express your own own story. When you're doing a film, it's a very collaborative medium, or at least it is for me. So you have, you know, your producing partners like I did, you know, Steve Parker's one of our producers on this. You have Dave Barry on this, who was the director of photography. Um, you have all of the actors and what they do. And so you're trying to, you of course, as the director are, in charge of this, but you're bringing all of this stuff together and you're trying to uh, slave or you're trying to merge all of this wonderful creativity um, into a, a pretty hearty vision and that's uh, a pretty hearty presentation. And that's that other element um, that comes when you're making a, a film that's different, I think, than probably um, any other art form save uh, 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 on the stage. Um, you're you're it's a very collaborative uh, bit and that's another great thing too is i use the, the, this analogy pretty regularly when it when describing filmmaking everyone who's on set from the director all the way down to a pa they're all cogs in one big machine and it takes all of them running and working together to make the project happen exactly exactly everybody is important and and you do learn that. And, and <laughs> what was also fun for me directing a feature, you had mentioned before, what, was, what were kind of the, the different things. The short films that I had done up until that point, um, there wasn't a lot of crew. There wasn't a lot of um, extra hands. So even as the director, you know, you're helping to move lights and you're helping to, you know, to, to take the food from one room to the other for people to eat. You're, you know, that's the kind of stuff that you do on a much smaller piece. On this, while we didn't have... Uh, you know, wasn't an elaborate production. It was still, we had some, we had some money to work with and we had crew. And I, the first, I, first time I reached over to, to grab a light to move it, I, you know, the, the grips and all gave me the look of death because you realized you're not, you're not actually helping <laughs> at that point. You're getting in the way of people doing the jobs. And it was very, it was very strange, but it was also kind of nice that after I said cut, you know, within 10 minutes, I was in the car and driving back to the to the hotel because there literally was nothing for me to do. Anything that I did probably was just 
uh, was just getting in the way. Oh no, no, I, I take it back. There was something I did. I had to, I could carry the, I got the cart, the actors back to the hotel too. <laughs> so, so there's a little bit of something, but, but that's cause they were, they were done and I was done and we all got to go back to the hotel. Well, you know, well, the crew was still you know, cleaning up and getting ready for the next day's stuff, but I, I couldn't do anything. That's a, that's a very, it was a very interesting experience um, to understand that, no, no, your job was done at that point. You can move on. But there were still people that were working to make sure that when you came back the next day, um, everything was ready for you to go again. So it's, it's humbling and it's exciting at the same time. That's great. That's really great. That's actually a good segue into my next question. And that is from the set of the dark place. Do you have any funny onset stories that you'd like to share? Um, it's been a little while for this, um, for the story. You know, what's, what's actually kind of funny <laughs> when you're doing an independent film. So people can shoot, um, five day weeks or six day weeks when you're on an independent film. And a lot of times you're shooting six day weeks, uh, because you, you know, time is money and your, your budget is kind of limited. So on this one, we were shooting six day weeks. So, uh, on a, on Friday, at nine or 10 o'clock at night, when we're, when we're wrapping up on that, on that last shot, I'm like, yes, it's Friday night. I can go back to the room. I can sleep in tomorrow. It's so awesome. And then, you, and then the other little voice in your head comes in and says, uh-uh, we got to go back, come back and do this again on Saturday because you're working six out of the seven days in the week. And it's, and you feel like you're, uh, 12 years old and it's, you know, it's the last night of uh, summer vacation or, or, you know, it's it, the, the, the final bell won't ring. It's like, Oh my goodness, I've got to do this all over again. Don't get me wrong. It's a, it's a really privileged place to be able to direct a film or whatnot. But when you're bone exhausted at 10 o'clock at night, and then you realize you got to get right back up and do it again the next day on a Saturday. And it's, and you're still another whole day away from getting any kind of break on this um it's it's uh that i found personally for me uh was was pretty hysterical one day i hope to tackle a feature but i I just i did my first short film several months ago and i remember just being exhausted after that so i can't imagine how the feeling (laughs) at the end of a feature um yeah you i was essentially brain dead for uh, for a week or so. And then, uh, it all kind of comes back and you're like, okay, now it's time to edit. Let's get going. Let's do this again. Uh, but it's, it's, it's just the nature of the beast. Um, uh, you, you're exhausted of course. And you say, I will never, ever, ever do that again. And then day or two later, you're like, okay, need to do it again. Let's, let's, <laughs> let's figure out how to do it. Um, I do, t- I do recommend that when I'm talking to people who are, shooting a short film or, or a feature or even an indie feature film to the, to the best of the degree possible is, um, especially for those indie films is to try to structure your budgets that you do actually have only five day weeks. And, uh, unless you just can't afford it, otherwise having two days off, um, is I think really important for your own sanity as a director, but the crew sanity, um, the, the, the cast piece of mind, all of that, it really and truly helps you to be able to stay in focus. And, and on a short film, um, to the degree possible, I, I try to tell people, um, if you, if you can don't do the shoot two or three or four weekends 
out of a month, it's it's actually on in that case just easier to try to take two extra days off of work and and shoot the thing over three or four or five days and get it all in there and get it all done and, and, and kind of move on and be exhausted for you know, Monday when you go back to work instead of being exhausted every Monday when you go back to work and and risk more of losing um, a cast member or having an accident come up because there's just so much time in between the the, 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 the attempts to, to shoot the content that you need. No, I think that's great advice. Now, you had mentioned uh, that it's been a while since you actually shot The Dark Place, but... The Dark Place is actually going to be uh, re-released in theaters uh, in New York yeah. later this week. What was it that inspired inspired this re-release? My producing partner, uh, Steve Parker, um, was, uh, had wanted a theatrical for this. And uh, he made a connection with a, with a theatrical company that said, oh no, we really like this. Let's, uh, let's take this out. And, and so we're going to be playing in uh, in New York, uh, in uh, Los Angeles, and San Francisco. Um, off the top of my head, yeah, the, we're going to play that. So it was one of those things where he, Steve, never said, you know, never said die. He just said, no, I, I, I really want a theatrical for this. And um, they saw it and thought that there was, that it was a, we could make this work. And so uh, we were able to get a theatrical out of this. And that, I think, is, is a kind of a testament to the movie because it, in as much as you can enjoy this um, on your own personal screen, uh, it is is a lot of fun when you're sitting with an audience that can also get into it too. I'm I'm hoping that um, that it finds a new group of fans and that uh, uh, people will bring a friend or something to to the theater to watch it, and then um, uh, we'll you know we'll see what happens. Word of mouth. That's great. That that's really awesome. So. As we wrap up, what's one piece of advice that you could give to an aspiring filmmaker? Um, the classic, uh, it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. Um, it was probably seven or eight years from the time that I had the idea for The Dark Place to the time that I was uh, standing on set to be able to do it. Um, you know, when I, that, that bit of when I first moved out to Los Angeles, it was a script that I pitched around and, um, while I got some interest, uh, nothing ever kind of clicked and I had to go back to school, um, get another degree, make new contacts, put all, put all a lot of other stuff together in order to get the film to the point where we were finally actually able to shoot it. You know, we had a, we had one lead attached and, and that fell through and, you know, then we had the director problem and, and all, and you just have to keep kind of moving forward, bit by bit by bit. Um, don't don't give up. I, you're totally entitled to give up. You're totally entitled to say it's never going to happen and you can walk away, and, and that's a perfectly valid choice. Um, but if you if you can, just keep pushing, and eventually, um, you have to understand what it is that you're doing, and you also have to understand how to put the pieces together. And then have a little bit of luck, and suddenly it all kind of clicks, and then there you are. You're standing on a set, and you're shooting a film. Fantastic advice. And last question, do you have any uh, website or social media that you'd like to plug so the listeners can follow you or Dark Place? Yeah, you know, they can um, they can find uh, Dark Place um, on Facebook at, uh, you know, at the Dark Place. 
Um, and uh, they can find me on Twitter at uh, uh, the one true Jody. And um, and I and you can track me and see any other any other new stuff that's coming along, that kind of thing. So um, those are two great places to keep up with everything with uh, with with what we've talked about today. Awesome. Well, Jody, thank you so much for taking the time to do the podcast. It was great. Cool. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks again to Jason and Jody for coming on the podcast. And hopefully you guys enjoyed this new dynamic, this new layer that I'm adding to the podcast. As far as reviews go, it's not going to be something that I do every single week, but I will more than likely be doing at least an additional segment. Um, It might be a piece of movie news. It might be some type of a review. I don't know. We're just going to have to see where it goes. Uh, Please leave some feedback. I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts on this new format, this new layout of the podcast. Feel free to write me uh, at facebook.com slash ddiamondpodcast. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram. Or if you want to email me, it's ddiamondpodcast at gmail.com. For next week's show, Jason will be joining me once again to review Jay and Silent Bob Reboot. And I'll also be joined with Nicole Dambro, who starred in the film Groupers, which I featured on this podcast a few weeks ago. So be sure to come back next week for that fun episode. As I said, you can follow me on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Podcast. If you'd like to subscribe to the show, you can go to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Stitcher Radio. Just search for The Derek Diamond Experience. And in closing, thank you as always to my close friends, the Unicorn Wranglers, for providing the theme music for the podcast. Their songs Late Night Drive-Thru and Light and Jazzy can be found on their latest album, Greetings from the Space Fan, which is available on Google Play, Apple Music, and Spotify. That's going to do it for this week's show. Thank you once again to Jason Robbins and Jody Wheeler. Be sure to come back next week to hear once again from Jason as we review Jay and Silent Bob Reboot, as well as my interview with Nicole Dambro. Enjoy the rest of your week. Have a safe and fun weekend. Thank you for tuning in to another awesome episode of the Derek Diamond Experience. I am your host, Derek Diamond, and we'll see you guys back here next Thursday. Thursday.